Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. And so we pick up his story today in chapter 25. So we remember that David is a fugitive from the law as Saul and his men are seeking his life. And we have seen Yahweh faithfully uh, deliver David in a number of ways. And we're going to see him deliver David in a different way than what we've seen so far in today's passage. So we've seen God deliver David from lions and bears during his days as a shepherd. Uh, We've seen God deliver uh, David from the sword of Goliath, that giant of the Philistines, when he went out to battle. Uh, We've seen God deliver David from multiple attempts on his life by Saul, from hurling spears and uh, men uh, encamping around his house and various other things. We've seen God rescue him from the custody of the Philistines in Gath when he uh, went there and they captured him. This time... God is going to deliver David from a more unlikely foe, namely himself. The story of this chapter is very much connected to the chapter before it uh, and, the, and the chapter after it. So there's really kind of a three-chapter thread here. There's a theme that runs through these three stories that show us God's faithfulness to provide and preserve his anointed. So it'll help us to look back briefly at what happened in chapter 24, where we were last week. So Last week in chapter 24, David passed on an opportunity to seize the kingdom for himself by striking down Saul in the cave. Remember, David and his men were hiding in this cave, and Saul happened to stop by this cave to relieve himself, and David cut off a piece of his robe, uh, and instead of taking Saul's life, which his men were urging him to do, God has clearly delivered him into your hands, David spared him and then made it known to Saul, I could have killed you and I haven't. So let it be known and seen plainly that I have no uh, murderous intent toward you. And so Saul then sort of announced and actually for the first time, Saul recognizes and acknowledges that David will be the king. So David passed on striking down Saul Uh, making a commitment there to wait to receive the kingdom in God's time and in God's way. I will not seize the kingdom. I will wait for Yahweh to give it in his way. In chapter 25, there's a similar temptation that befalls David, but this time he's going to need a little bit of help. He's not quite as self-controlled in uh, this particular account. He will receive help. Uh, ultimately from Yahweh, of course, God will deliver. But in the unfolding drama of this chapter, we'll see Yahweh's intervention comes in the form of a wise and courageous woman. But before the story begins, we receive a brief bulletin of breaking news in Israel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So we haven't seen Samuel for several chapters. The last time we saw Samuel was uh, when 
David was basically hiding out with him and his prophets, and Saul had sent a bunch of uh, three separate groups of his men to go and capture David. And every time God had sort of rushed upon them by his spirit and they had begun prophesying and singing God's praises and were distracted from, uh, from their mission to capture David. That's the last time we saw Samuel. And so now we have this very brief, almost seemingly kind of random, out of nowhere mention that Samuel has died. And Israel assembled and mourned and they buried him in his home. And then the story just moves on. Samuel is a, is a very noteworthy and important figure in the history of Israel, as we've seen. He was the, the, the first of these prophets of God who would, who would anoint a king and then speak God's word into the ear of the king. So the transition of the, the nation of Israel into a monarchy happened under the leadership of Samuel. And Samuel provided a wonderful, faithful example of hearing, honoring, obeying, and delivering God's word. He is a faithful, godly leader. And there had not been very many of those uh, among the people of Israel up to this point. And now, of course, the, the nation is languishing under the sort of murderous obsession of Saul. So Samuel is a very important person. And of course, the book bears his name. But what's remarkable about uh, the, the reporting here of Samuel's death is how unremarkable it is. There's just almost nothing about it. Samuel died, people mourned, they buried him, and then we're immediately on with David's story. It's like this just brief interruption. We interrupt your program to make this breaking announcement. Samuel's dead, and now let's get back to your regular programming, right? That's, that's kind of how it reads, there's no fanfare, there's no coverage of the funeral, there's no in-depth interviews with those who knew him best, right? He's dead, he's gone, and away we go with the story of David. And I think there's uh, something to be learned from that and just observed, and that, that God's servants, the best of them, the most faithful of them, the most obedient of them, simply advance God's story. It's not really Samuel's story at all. The book bears his name, but it's not about Samuel. In fact, it's not really about Samuel any more than it's about Saul or David. The story ultimately is of God. The point is God and his purposes to rule his people through his anointed Messiah. Liam Gallagher says, God buries his workmen, but his work continues. And so we see Samuel, this faithful servant and leader and prophet of God, has died and has been buried and mourned at, at some level by the people of Israel. And then on we go, because the story must be told. But ultimately, it's not David's story, it's God's story. And it's to that story and the purposes of God that now the narrative returns. And so Samuel has been buried, and back to David we go. Look at verse 2. We'll read just a couple of verses here, and we'll kind of tell the story as we work our way through this chapter. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Caleb being one of the two spies in 
Israel in the book of Joshua who had faithfully, uh, when they went into the land of Canaan, he had come back with a report saying, we can do this, right? We can follow uh, God's commands and he will give us the victory. So there's a contrast here between Caleb uh, and his faith in God and this descendant of Caleb who is harsh and badly behaved, right? So we learn uh, that this man, Nabal, lives in Maon, which is the region that David and his men have been hanging out since the end of chapter 23. And the wilderness of Paran is near there in that region. And so we learn that there's a man uh, who lives in that same area where David and his men are. The man is rich. The man is a brute, all right, so uh, the author does not have much good to say about Nabal. And in fact, he introduces him to us alongside his wife with a clear contrast. His wife was discerning and beautiful, but Nabal was harsh and badly behaved, boorish, right? So you have two descriptors for each of them there. And so we see, obviously, the, the author here thinks very highly of Abigail and very little of Nabal. And that will uh, be a helpful lens through which to see how this story unfolds. And indeed, we'll see both of those uh, assessments are quite accurate. I think we'll come to agree with uh, the author uh, about both Nabal and Abigail. So we learn in, uh, in verse 4, that there's this, uh, they're in a season here of, of the shearing of sheep. Let's, let's read verses 4 through 12, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And so David makes this request. Um, it's this time of sheep shearing, which is a time of work, obviously, but also apparently a time of festivity. There's a feast day, and this is the day on which David sends his men to Nabal, uh, and he's going to ask for some provisions, right? He sends him 10 men and asks him for things. So probably a decently substantial uh, provision or, or handout that he's looking for here. Obviously not enough to, to serve 600 men, but he's asking for uh, hospitality, on the part of Nabal. Now, in this culture, in this day and time, extending hospitality was an extremely important value. So what David is asking is not out of the ordinary, even though it might strike us as kind of presumptuous. Why would you go to the stranger and say, hey, give us a bunch of stuff so that we can enjoy this feast day along with you, right? But the truth is, it's very, very normal, very ordinary for someone to, uh, to ask such a thing. And of a wealthy man who has an abundance of provisions, it would have been very uh, normal and courteous for that man to then extend some generosity and some hospitality. Furthermore, David and his men have actually been of service to Nabal's workers, which he references here. He says, let him know that, the, that your men lost nothing of all the time that we were there. And actually, uh, one of Nabal's servants will confirm that and expand on that a little bit later. 
Uh, and so he says, we've actually been helpful to Nabal's workers. And so the fact that, uh, so, so David has made this request, a reasonable request to receive some hospitality from his hand. Here is how Nabal responds. Look at verse nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Okay, this is not the response that David was hoping for or expecting. The fact that Nabal refuses to fulfill David's requests for provisions is an insult, quite frankly, given the, 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 the cultural kind of expectation and value on hospitality and the fact that David and his men have actually been helping Nabal's sheep shearers and, and, and shepherds uh, out in the fields. It, it, it would make perfect sense for Nabal to then extend some generosity here. And so he doesn't honor the request. I'm not going to give you my stuff which in itself is a bit insulting. But the contempt that Nabal expresses here for David is remarkable. He, he, he acts like he doesn't know who David is, which I think is unlikely. And we'll actually find that his wife, Abigail, is very aware of who David is. And so I think it's not even true when he says, who is David, right? Who is this son of Jesse? He, he knows exactly who David is, but he, but he says some pretty low things about him. He's, he basically calls him a runaway slave. There's all kinds of servants running away from their masters these days, right? How am I supposed to know that, you know, he's honorable or whatever? He's probably just some runaway slave. And then all this emphasis, he, well, I take what's mine, my bread, my water that I've killed from my shearers, right? And give it to some guy from who knows where. I mean, there, this is contemptuous disdainful speech about David on the part of Nabal. And just a side note here, as we get a picture of who Nabal is, this emphasis and his repetition of the word my, 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 right? All this stuff is mine. There's, that's a pretty good expression of what foolishness is. Foolishness is at least in part thinking that what you have is yours, and that who you are is all because of your own doing, right? So he has an abundance of things, and he thinks, this is all mine. I worked for this. This is my stuff. I have no reason to share this with anybody. He is inflated with pride and self-importance. And so I think there's a good, just a cautionary reminder here. to Let's be sure to remember where our blessings come from. Even those of us who wouldn't say that we're wealthy and have, you know, 3,000 goats or whatever it is that Nabal has. Anybody have that many goats? Um, what we have is from the Lord, right? James tells us that all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. And so everything we have, we've received. And so there's a, there's a basic kind of posture of humility before the Lord where we just go, everything we have is from you, not of my own doing. And because of that, if we recognize that everything we have is from God, there's, there's a posture of generosity, of, of stewardship that we ought to have. 
Proverbs 3.27 says not to withhold good from others when it's in your power to do it. And often God gives us gifts so that we have the power to give them to others, right? He calls us to lives of generosity. Well, Nabal obviously does not embody this whatsoever. In fact, he's quite the opposite. Everything I have is mine. Why would I share it with the likes of you? Is essentially what he says to David. Well, I wonder how David's gonna take to that. What's David gonna think of this, not just refusal to give him gifts, but these insults that he sort of heaps upon him as well. Look at verse 13. So David's young men turned and came back and said all this to him. That's verse 12, verse 13. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So David's got 600 guys. 400 of them are going with him up to Nabal's house to bust some heads, right? Everybody get your sword. We are gonna go and teach this Nabal fella a lesson. That is David's response to this insult from Nabal. It's not exactly the calm and cool and humble and you know, deferring kind of David that we've seen. In chapter 24, we saw him patiently, calmly passing on the opportunity to strike Saul down when it would have been easy to do so and clean to do so. And his kingdom would have immediately been ushered in had he done so. And here in chapter 25, he's insulted by some rich guy and he's had enough. And this hot-headed response leads him and all of his men to strap on their swords and to head toward Nabal's house with murder in mind. This is not, I should, uh, should be obvious here, but this is not a godly response. This is not what God would uh, desire for his people. This will be a violation of God's clear commands. Anybody remember the, the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not murder there's at least that one in view. And it is a departure from David's concern for God's reputation instead of his own. Because that's what we've seen of David. He, he is so zealous for God's honor, God's name to be uh, uh, glorified and recognized. And here he is plotting to avenge a personal insult with havoc and bloodshed. And it's going to be ugly because Nabal has a lot. He has a lot of stuff. He, I'm sure he has a lot of servants. So David is going to go and put an end to all of them. Let's hope he doesn't succeed. Look at verse 14. One of the young men, this is now one of Nabal's servants, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house." And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So this servant of Nabal learns of David's plan, 
Perhaps he was out in the fields and he saw David's men all gathering up and he went, what's this about? I don't know, but he overhears and learns of David's plan to ride up to Nabal's house with an army of 400 men, swords on, to exact revenge. And he doesn't go where you might expect a servant to go when he finds out that his master's house is about to be ransacked. He doesn't go to Nabal and say, hey, look alive, we got an army headed our way. He goes to Nabal's wife. He goes to Abigail. And he tells us exactly why. He is such a worthless man that nobody can even talk to him. He won't listen. Even if I went to Nabal and said, hey, David is coming to kill you and all of us, he probably wouldn't believe us. He wouldn't care. He'd send us out into harm's way. Who knows? But he does not go to Nabal. He knows when I need help, when we're in trouble, who do I go to? The master's wife. I'm going to Abigail. And so he goes and tells Abigail. And there again, he confirms the help that David and his men had provided while they were out in the fields. And he went to them with this, to Nabal with this request and he railed at them, right? He just unleashed all this fury and contempt upon him. So harm is intended. So do something about it, is his plea to Abigail. So in verses 18 to 22, Abigail will begin to will prepare to intercede here. She's, she's going to make a plan. So look at verse 18. We'll see Abigail in action. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of, per, of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that, he belonged, all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. All right, so David is looking for a pretty thorough revenge here. He's going to kill every one of Nabal's men, and obviously Nabal himself. So Abigail begins to get things in order to provide the gifts that Nabal really should have given in the first place, right? Nabal should have said, absolutely, here's some stuff, and he didn't. So now when Abigail learns that David has been insulted uh, by this gift being refused and that harm is intended, she rounds up very quickly. It says she made haste and took all these various things, loaves and grains and figs and raisins and all this stuff and loaded them up. Let's go. And so she's coming behind this caravan, if you will, of, of men and donkeys who are carrying all these gifts to David. So she is on the road, on the way to interrupt, to, to, to intercept the path of David as he's coming up toward their home with all of his men. So she says, go before me and I will come behind. And so they intercept. They arrive now. David and his men are coming this way. Abigail and her servants are coming toward David and they meet. And here's what happens. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face 
and bowed to the ground. And then she delivers the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. By the way, the name Nabal means fool. Could have said that earlier. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt with my Lord, dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant." This is an impressive speech. This is a wise and uh, timely word. As she intercepts David on the path and she places herself in the way. She places herself indeed in the place of Nabal. She, in, she intercedes for him. She mediates, if you will. She positions herself as a mediator between David and Nabal and shrewdly talks David out of this vengeful decision. Look at some of the things that she said to him in, in this speech. She obviously very respectfully refers to him as my Lord, which is like sir, right? But, uh, but wives often would refer to their husbands as Lord in that lowercase l sense uh, in that day and time. So this, this is a term of respect. This is, I am at your service, right? Uh, and, and when we see all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that's God. So it gets confusing if you read it as Lord. Um, but so she clearly recognizes who David is, right? She says, God will surely establish your sure house, she says, you will be the prince over Israel. She knows who David is, and she's aware that he has been anointed by God to be the king, prince over Israel. And she pleads with him here, reasons with him, if you will. You don't want to become king with blood on your hands. You don't want to have God give you the kingdom and be guilty of bloodshed for no good reason she says. And I don't think she means there that Nabal has not insulted him or, or perhaps deserves some kind of punishment. She's just saying, this would be sin on your part. 
She is confronting David with the reality that the decision to go and kill Nabal and all of his house would be sinful. You would have shed blood without cause. Or look down in the middle of verse, uh, toward the end of verse 31, working salvation for himself, right? Taking matters into his own hand. Instead of, as we saw David doing in, verse, in chapter 24, waiting for God waiting for God's deliverance, God's giving of the kingdom. And so Abigail says, this would not be the way you want to begin your kingdom, all right? And so she puts herself in the way, which is risky because David is angry and he's on the war path. And to put yourself in front of David is putting yourself in harm's way. And she courageously places herself between David and Nabal and mediates for him. And she talks David out of it. Oh, how we need Abigails in our lives. We need people who will confront us in our sin and warn us, you're going the wrong way. It is a great mercy of God to arrest our foolish plans and to restrain our hands from evil. Do you pray that God would keep you from sin? Is that something that you're mindful of in your prayer life. God, help me today to avoid sin, to withstand temptation. That ought to be something that we care about, that we are mindful of. Have you given people in your life permission to warn you when you're headed towards sin? Hint, hint, that's what church membership is. You've got some other people in your life right now who you've said, I give you permission to do this, right? To come to me in challenge and to say, I think you're doing something wrong. We ought to welcome that in one another's lives. And we ought to pursue that. We ought to be willing and courageous enough to stand in someone else's way and say, this is sinful. You should rethink this. You should back up on this. Dale Ralph Davis says of, of this, what mercy sends frustration to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances in our path? It is important that like David, we respond rightly to such episodes of Yahweh's restraining providence. We could hardly do better than to worship with David's own words, blessed be Yahweh who has held back his servant from evil. And indeed that is where we turn to next, how David responds to this exhortation from Abigail. So look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. By God's grace, David responds to Abigail's reproof with humility, with repentance, Indeed, turning away from his own foolish decision and recognizing that Abigail was sent to him by God to deliver this warning. 
this exhortation. He was caught up in foolishness for the better part of this chapter, but here he gives a wonderful example of confession and repentance. And he's right to recognize the providence and mercy of God behind Abigail's exhortation. God sends us warnings to help us, to grow us, and sometimes to save others from us. Because at times our sinful decisions are not only going to be harmful to ourselves, but to those around us. And so God is good to send people or interruptions or distractions that would hinder us from carrying out our own foolish, sinful plans. Let's pray that by God's grace, we would respond to such correction with the humility and repentance that David demonstrates for us here. How often does it go the other way? When we're challenged or confronted in our sin, we just defend ourselves. We dig our heels in and we say, this is not your business or you're seeing this the wrong way, or who are you to say, right? We have all these ways that we sort of stiff arm God's people when they come to us with warning, with correction. It should not be that way. We should all recognize our weakness and our sinful propensity, our tendency towards sin to such a degree that when a brother or sister with concern comes to us with a word of warning, a word of caution, a word of rebuke that we would carefully and humbly consider what they have to say. Well, how does this story turn out? What happens to old Nabal? Look at verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. So you've got the actual anointed king who is being uh, refused the, the provisions of this feast. And then you've got this rich fool, Nabal, who's feasting as though he's a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. And so she told him nothing at all until the morning light. I'm gonna let him sleep this off. He won't even hear a word I say. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, His wife told him these things, presumably that, by the way, you ticked David off and he just about killed every stinking one of us, but I went and interceded and it didn't happen. His wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Perhaps this is a stroke or a heart attack, something like that. He seems to maybe lie in a coma or something for about 10 days, and then God takes his life. And once again, we see the principle here. God will take vengeance. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. We had that command from Deuteronomy. Paul repeats it in Romans 12. Do not avenge yourselves, for the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, right? God's aware that his anointed has been uh, dishonored and insulted. And he's aware that Nabal is a fool, like the fool in Psalm 14.1, who says in his heart, there is no God, right? All that I have is mine. And Nabal is worthy of judgment, and God will deliver it. And God does deliver it. In verse 38, it says, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. To quote, Dale Ralph Davis again, he says, the brevity of verse 38 is probably deliberate, as if to say to David, 
Note the simplicity. Note the magisterial ease with which Yahweh cares for this matter. How unnecessary all your blusterings. David's like, we're going to strap on our swords and round up an army of 400 guys and we're going to go kill them all and wreak havoc. And God's like, just hang on. Just like that's all it took, right? Just wait and leave justice to me. It's kind of what God seems to be saying in that. And so God in his mercy, in his kindness, restrains David from his own sin, from his own foolish choice to seize not so much the kingdom in this case, but to enter the kingdom with bloodshed on his hands, having taken these innocent lives. And so, not that Nabal was innocent, but all his servants, certainly. So that's where the story ends, except we hear a little bit more about Abigail. Look at verse 39. This is kind of a, a pro, uh, an epilogue, if you will, after the events have happened. Here's what comes next. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be Yahweh, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So we, let's actually read verse, the last two verses here. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. All right, so this gets a little complicated here at the end. We learn there that, that David's wife, Michal, who was the daughter of Saul, has now been given away to another man, in marriage. So the last time probably that David saw Michal was that day that Saul's men were encamping around their house and Michal learned of it and put like kind of the Ferris Bueller type, you know, like stuff in the sheets to make it look like he was there. Oh, he's sick. But meanwhile, she's sneaking him out the window. That's probably the last time that David saw Michal. And so Saul's given her in marriage to somebody else. And so David apparently has married another woman already, Ahinoam. We don't know anything about her at this point. And now he marries Abigail as well. So just a quick word here. We can't focus on this, but a quick word about polygamy, right? Because when you come across it, you go like, oh, that's strange. But it happens a good bit uh, in the Old Testament. When, when you're reading through, you'll find certain people had multiple wives or whatever. Uh, polygamy is certainly not God's design for marriage, right? So, so that's not the way that God set it up in Genesis and uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, he never affirms it or blesses it or condones it. And in the, the teaching on marriage in the New Testament is probably even more explicit uh, that it's intended to be one man and one woman. In fact, the requirement for an elder is that he be a husband of one wife or a one woman man. Um, and so uh, God never blesses polygamy in the Bible. However, he does seem to allow it uh, in these ancient times, perhaps because it was the only way for some women to be protected and provided for. In a patriarchal society, a woman relied upon her husband for provision and protection and safety. And so if the women outnumbered the men, which was usually the case, 
Uh, it may be that some men had to take multiple wives for themselves in order to provide for and protect the women in their communities. So it was kind of a, a reality of the day and a, a, a solution that people came up with. Uh, and God never condones it or blesses it, but he does allow it or, or, or permit it to take place uh, in ancient Israel. And so it, it strikes us as a little strange, and we ought to go, this is not God's ideal. That's not what God intends for marriage. Uh, and so we could clearly uh, uh, denounce polygamy as, uh, as what God blesses or intends for people. And nevertheless, we see that going on here. So David has at least these two wives now, Ahinoam and then Abigail uh, as well. So God continues to preserve his anointed, right? Preparing him for the kingdom that will be his. But he's not to take it by force. He's not to take vengeance into his own hands. God mercifully, providentially restrains David from his own sin and foolishness by providing a timely and courageous exhortation from a wise and noble woman. But before we close this chapter, I want us to look at the story through a different lens, I want us to ask the question, where do we see an echo of Jesus in this story? Where is Jesus foreshadowed or prefigured in this episode? Uh, you can probably figure out who, in what event, most pictures for us Jesus. Look at Abigail's behavior in her encounter with David. Number one, she mediates for David, taking the blame for Nabal's offense upon herself. She places herself between the offended anointed and the offending fool, the ball. She mediates. Second, she gives to David and his men gifts, right? The gifts that Nabal should have given in the first place. But she brings gifts to give to David. And thirdly, she reminds David, God is with you. God is for you. In fact, she assures him, you will be prince over Israel, right? So in these three ways, we see an echo of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Because at the cross of Calvary, Jesus mediates for sinners, taking the blame for their sin upon himself. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might bring us to God. Number two, Jesus gives us the gift of his righteousness. When Jesus dies upon the cross, there is this transaction that takes place where he takes our sin upon himself and he confers upon those who would trust in him his very righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We get the gift of Jesus' righteousness in his death on the cross. And thirdly, Jesus' death in our place secures God's presence and blessing. And the promise that he would then be able to give to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have in Abigail a reminder that the story of David, the story of the book of Samuel is bigger than these characters, bigger than this period in Israel's history. It's ultimately the story of Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, who would suffer for his people and rise to be their king forever. But if, Ab if Abigail pictures for us the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, then I think we see in David and Nabal two possible conflicting responses to God's grace. 
So Abigail intercedes, mediates, and we see David responds with humility and repentance and is blessed, right? God spares him, God blesses him, indeed fights his battle for him. And Nabal, is, his heart is hardened and he remains in his sin and he is cursed and God judges him. And I think that's very much true of people today as we respond to God's grace in the gospel. Christ suffered for sinners. He took our sins upon himself and he extends the offer of new life. If you will trust, if you will repent of your sins and come to Christ in faith, he will save you, restore you, redeem you, give you eternal life. And we can either, like David, respond with faith, with humility, recognizing our sin, turning to Christ, and be blessed, have the gift of eternal life. Or like Nabal, we can harden our hearts. We can remain in our sins and be judged by God. And that is what it comes down to for each of us, for every human being. What will you do with the work of Jesus Christ? Will you soften your heart, acknowledge your sin, and turn to him in faith? Or will you, like Nabal, the fool, be judged for your hardness of heart and remain in your sin? We're going to turn uh, our attention now to the Lord's Supper. And the supper is something that the Lord Jesus gave to his church as a, a visible and regular reminder of the gospel. It's a proclamation of Jesus in our place, the life that we can have through him. And we partake together of the bread that represents his broken body and of the cup that represents his shed blood for sins. The way that we, uh, that we practice communion here at Imprint is that we ask, we, we, we believe that the supper is intended for baptized believers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you place your faith in him for, sal- for salvation and you've been baptized as a profession uh, or upon your profession of faith as a visible picture of your faith in Christ, then we welcome you to take the supper with us. If that doesn't describe you, then we just ask you to, uh, to watch and pray and we'd love to have a conversation later on. So I'm going to go ahead and I'll pray for us and then we'll have the, uh, the elements of the supper passed out uh, and we'll just have you take the bread and the cup and hold on to it and then we'll take those together uh, when they've all been handed out. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that you gave in sending Christ to bear our sins. We thank you for the life that is ours because he laid his down. Lord, we pray that you would grant us by faith the humility to recognize our sin and our need for you and to take by faith Christ into our hearts and rest ourselves upon his completed work that his life and his death and his resurrection becomes our story. And so as we take the supper together this morning, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts and help us to find ourselves standing upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised for our justification. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.